Good evening, everybody. How are you doing? How are you, Mr. Real? I am great, RFM. How's life treating you? Better than I deserve. We've got a full, full show tonight. And it's probably going to go maybe a little bit longer than the typical hour that we usually bring our shows in. Oh, yeah. They mostly end in an hour. Yes. And we've got a guest as well. Well, here's what's going on. Tonight's show, it's uh, Mormon, Mormonism Live, everybody. It's January 24th, 2024. The title of our episode is A Marvelous Work and a Blunder. And what we're doing is we are doing a brief review of the recent video that was dropped within this past week by Scripture Central titled A Marvelous Work, colon, The Greatness of the Evidence. And what this is supposed to do is show evidence for the Book of Mormon so that you can rest assured that, yes, indeed, this is indeed a historical text that tells things the way they really happened in ancient America. Now, this is just um, an overview, really. They touch on five different items during the course of it. It's 43 minutes long. It's very slickly produced. A lot of money went into this production. But unfortunately, no matter how nicely you wrap it, it's kind of the same old Mormon apologetics. So we're going to look at this on a surface level. They're promising more to come. By the way, very popular. This is over 80,000 views now on YouTube for this video today. And it's less than a week old. So it's getting a lot of traction. There's a lot of people who are watching this. A lot of people want to have their faith shored up by these evidences. So what we'll do, any one of these five that they're touching on as they go through, we could spend an entire episode on. We're going to not do that tonight. They're promising future episodes where they'll go more in depth in each of these. Then we'll go more in depth. Right now, I want to talk about the errors and omissions as we go through. And by that, I mean the things that they're not saying, what they're saying, and how they're saying it. All right? Because I think that in a number of instances, we have caught them off first base, trying to be, well, let's just say, somewhat misleading in the strength of their their evidence and what it means. Any comments from you, Bill, before we bring our guest on? No, I'm just really excited. Having watched this, gone through these, I'm uh, really excited for the psychology behind why apologetics works, and then when you look with a critical eye, why it actually falls apart. Yes, and this is all my fault because I got too many clips. I, I, I did too many clips from this. But um, John Lendwall is with us tonight. John, are you there? I'm here. Hi, RFM. Hi, Bill. How are you, John? John? How are you? Dr. Lundwall, how are you doing? Uh, I'm doing great. It's great to be on your show. Though. Yes, and, and Dr. Lundwall, he's got a tour that he is give, uh, guiding down to Book of Mormon lands here in the next couple months. Do we have the slide for this? Yes, the Lost Cities of the Maya tour. And there's I, Dr. Lundwall's picture there on the left in the upper right-hand corner. I'm presuming that's Evans Lansing Smith. Is that right? Yeah, Evan uh, Evans is a good friend of mine. He's a Joseph Campbell scholar, uh, traveled with Joseph Campbell. Uh, yeah, March 17th to, through the 23rd, we're going to be in Chichen Itza filming the equinox shadow, the serpent shadow that undulates down the Temple of Kukulkan on the equinox. And of course, we'll, we'll be at Ushmal, Ekbalam, Labna, Loltun. Uh, it's going to be a spectacular trip. At a discounted price because I'm I'm offering graduate student prices because I'm taking a bunch of grad students. So uh, if uh, I've got uh, three spots left, so if anyone's interested in your show, it it won't be a Book of Mormon tour. 
but it will be spectacular. Wait, wait, wait. You won't be pointing out where all the baptismal fonts are on these temples. I'm going to be pointing out the skull racks. Okay, sounds good. <laughs> skull racks. Kol Kol Khan, I remember him. He's one of the many ancient uh, American deities that yeah. uh, represent Jesus Christ, isn't he? That is correct. He's often uh, used as a as right as an image of Christ. Here, here's the Mesoamerican Jesus. Okay. So, by the way, if if somebody calls and mentions the words Mormonism Live, do they get a special discount for that? They do, a huge discount. Wow. Do you pay them to go? <laughs> no. Okay, I'm sorry. No. But please, uh, how do they contact you to to um, get these three tickets? Uh, they they can uh, direct message me on Facebook, or you know, you should uh, put my contact information in the show notes, um, and they can just go directly to the link. Okay, and I did say three I will give them a discount code. Tickets. They they tell me Mormonism Live or yeah. Mormonish Podcast, and they'll get a, a cool seven hundred bucks off the trip. Wow, Mormon issue have to pay double. <laughs> Take All right, but let's get into the show. I know we, we've talked a little bit here, and uh, once again, we've got to get started on this quickly. Now, this is the first clip, and this is basically an introduction in what they say they're going to be doing. The host is named Scott Christopher, and we'll get a flavor for him in this brief clip. I'm Scott Christopher, and I intend to travel the globe. I plan to talk to researchers, archaeologists, scientists, and people of faith as we dive deep into the text, searching for clues that help support the evidence of the Book of Mormon, its authenticity, and perhaps most importantly, its divinity. And if you know me... There we, there we go. go. So that's so, what they're going to be doing. Now, this uh, fellow, Scott Christopher, seems like a likable sort. He's quite amiable. He's a little bit intentionally goofy. He plays for some laughs. He reminds me of the Mormon version of Conan O'Brien. <laughs> you had some thoughts about this, Bill, that you shared with me earlier. Um, is this what was this? So I was trying to manage the sound clips, but this was, yeah, I this is one where we're, we're going to talk with scientists and archaeologists and archaeologists and, and not researchers. It's not in no, this no, no. video. <laughs> no, no. So to the audience, he sets you up by thinking you're going to hear from the experts. You're going to hear from archaeologists, scientists, and researchers. Now, researcher can be anything. I'm a researcher. RFM's a researcher. That can mean anything you want. But notice as we get in through the video, how many archaeologists and scientists we hear from. Yes. And spoiler alert, zero. <laughs> All right, so let's go to this next part because during this entire 43-minute video, multiple occasions, they're doing the Mormon apologist song and dance. They're doing the two-step, which is we have faith and we have a witness of the Holy Ghost and we know the Book of Mormon is true. Therefore, why do we need evidence? Why are you mucking around with this evidence? Why, why is, is that important? important? Uh, it, it is hard. For a lot of people just taking Moroni at his word and and asking in faith with a sincere heart and you know if the book is true and it it happens and and that's that's enough and uh, why the search for evidence everyone is at a different place in their lives with belief or with a conviction 
I have no doubts, you know. I so for me, and I think for a lot of other people, it, it's uh, it, it evokes sort of something that Elder Holland said, and of course I'm paraphrasing, but it was something like, "Your faith and conviction in this are more solidified. It grows if you engage both your head as well as your heart." But to be able to see the evidence of X, Y, or Z, and they go, "Never thought of it that way before." And that may kind of unlock the pursuit for them. Yeah, I like that idea that the evidence confirms the feeling and opens the door. I think that's awesome. Right. So the first thing is he says, I never thought of it that way before. No, actually, that's not the point of Book of Mormon evidence. The point of Book of Mormon evidence is to confirm you in the way that you already think. That's the whole point of it, to show that what you believe to be true really is true. And it's just fascinating to watch how they do this throughout the show in interspersed with the items that they present, which they label as evidence. And what they end up saying is evidence isn't important, is not important, but we've got this evidence, but we don't really need this evidence because we have a testimony from the Holy Ghost. But here, here's this evidence anyway. And by the time it's over, I'm left wondering, why did you put at least big six figures, if not seven, into this production if it's not even necessary? Your thoughts, John? Yeah, I actually have an extended comment on this one, if you don't mind. Look, for many years, millions of Christians and Jews have known that large portions of the Bible are not to be taken literally and historically. They recognize there are different genres of texts and mythological structures embedded within it. Sure enough, Protestant fundamentalism interprets the text literally and historically. But from the days of Aquinas, there were many other ways to adjudicate the biblical narratives. My point is, for millions of believers, the Bible does not have to be historical in order for it to be true. This cannot be said for the Book of Mormon. The standard of proof for the Book of Mormon is not Moroni's promise. It is in its literal historicity. The origin story of Mormonism requires an actual angel, Moroni, holding an actual set of gold plates that contain an actual history of real people relating over a thousand years of real events that are detailed in literary literalness in the text. In order for the Book of Mormon to be true, it must be historical. Finally, if Joseph Smith lied about Moroni, then he lied about John the Baptist, Peter, James, and John, and there are no priesthood keys, and the entire truth claim conglomerate of Mormonism collapses. And when men walk around proclaiming they're the Lord's anointed and abandon tithing and sacrifice, then any person, member or non-member, has the right to ask for evidence of that claim, and that evidence is historical evidence. So they begin by saying, why do we even need evidence? And I am saying, actually, you must show up with historical evidence. The stakes are high, and that's what you must do. And I agree with you. It's just interesting for them to be saying, but we don't really need it, because, of course, the Holy Ghost witness is superior to any kind of evidence that's part of the doctrine of the church bill did you have anything you wanted to add to that before we go to the next clip the only thing i would say is that when you say hey look we we latter-day saints get to pray to god and we get answers from him and that's sufficient one is that there are numerous faiths out there practically all of them to some extent have believers within them who have spiritual experiences and those spiritual experiences 
tether them to knowing that their faith is the faith that they should be in, and more than that, that their faith is the one true path uh, to be on, one. Two is that as we get into evidence, how your brain weighs evidence, how the believer looks at evidence and decides what is uh, weighty, what should have weight to it, really depends on the person presenting it and what they say and how they say it. And we'll get into numerous examples in this video where the, uh, where the producer, uh, Scott here, uh, and the rest of the apologists who are in it carefully word things in such a way as to pull you into believing them, but which once you take their words apart, you realize it's actually just empty words. All right. Thank you. So now we are ready for the next clip. This is the first item of evidence that they're going to present of the five in this, this video. video. Okay. Uh, by the way, everybody, just so you know, we're having a little sound glitch here that when the, the video goes up on the screen, then the speakers here start echoing, including myself. You've already heard that a couple of times. So I'm going to try it. That's why I'm trying to discipline myself to not interject comments while the video is playing. It's very difficult, as you might imagine, for me to do that. Here it is. And I give myself extra credit as a former Mormon apologist for recognizing immediately this location as Lake Atitlan. This is awesome. You know, we are going to be visiting an awful lot of beautiful, even exotic locales around the world looking for evidence to support the Book of Mormon. But one thing we will not be doing is trying to define exactly where certain Book of Mormon events may or may not have taken place. In fact, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints itself has made the following statement I read, the church takes no position on the specific geographic location of Book of Mormon events in the ancient Americas. Church members are asked not to teach theories about Book of Mormon geography in church settings, but to focus instead on the Book of Mormon's teachings and testimony of Jesus Christ and his gospel. So there's that. Enough said. Let's get out on the lake. Okay, so after having made that declaration and reading that declaration from the church, as if they're going to follow that, they immediately, this whole movie is a refutation and a violation of that directive from the First Presidency and the church about not talking about geography, focusing on Jesus Christ and his message. But he's going to go out there onto Lake Ati Oh, and there's one other thing about this. It's very important. We'll get to this in spades later on. But what they're doing now is they are using this idea and this admission, I call it, by the church leadership that they've got no clue as to where the Book of Mormon took place on this in this hemisphere in North and South America. They've got no idea where it took place. Now, they're taking that as a license then to look anywhere they want in all of North America, in all of Central America, in all of South America, from the Arctic Circle down to the Cape of Good Hope, I think it is, right. down there at the bottom of South America. And if you find anything in those areas that can even be remotely associated with anything in the Book of Mormon, then you've hit pay dirt, and that's an evidence for the Book of Mormon. Bill, any comment from you? While... I understand the um, the perspective of we don't know where it's at. That's a very different thing from we have the liberty to then suggest multiple locations, sharing evidence from multiple locations, and positing that that evidence should be taken seriously. If you said it's again, 
we don't necessarily need to pinpoint where it is, but if you're going to show evidence of where it was, you have to pick one spot. You can't pick three spots. You can't pick two spots. You sure as hell can't pick four of them. Right. Anything from you, Dr. Lenwalt? Yeah, just real quick. Uh, there are four ways to adjudicate a historical narrative like the Book of Mormon. You've got to know temporal context, when a thing happened, geographic geographic context where a thing happened cultural context that's your archaeology and anthropology and linguistics if you can pull any one of those four out you can disprove the artifact or the event they begin by saying we're not claiming any geographic context so if you don't have a place by the way all those other things are connected if you don't have a place where this happened then what is your archaeology and anthropology going to look like what is your culture? The culture belongs to the place, right? So, so if you are taking away the geo, uh, the geographical context, uh, you are already um, fudging the data. Can I anything just say anywhere in this side of the the hemisphere, and actually even over in Arabia, they'll get to that as well. Pretty much anything anywhere can be used as evidence of the Book of Mormon as long as they can link it to something in the text. It doesn't make any difference where it's found from what time or from what culture. And I think that's a methodology that's doomed to failure. A believer can do that, but a scholar cannot. The only way, so first off, the only way you can pick multiple locations that are quite a distance apart from each other is to use the hemispheric model. But the Book of Mormon doesn't support that. You have to be able to uh, travel these lands on foot in certain time periods. A hemispheric model absolutely is not supported and no apologist that I know of any longer holds to a hemispheric model of the Book of Mormon. If you now pick multiple locations and present evidence, the entire audience needs to clearly understand that only one of those can be real. Hence, what you're saying is that if your evidence in this other location, as well as uh, this location, have similar strength in your mind, the reality is we all know that only one of those can be right Hence, you're self-admitting that the strength of evidence in both places being comparable comparable or somewhat equal is actually weak to begin with. In the next 45-second clip, they're going to be out on the water, and they're going to take a break before they go diving in order to soften the blow. And it's not poisoning the water hole. What it is is it's clearing the way for what it is they're going to be doing. So they're going to dumbed down expectations that's what it is and we're going to get a mini lecture a 45 second lecture on the difference between the direct evidence which actually proves something and indirect evidence which doesn't prove anything it deals in possibilities and maybes okay so they're going to set you up to only expect indirect evidence for the book of mormon they're not going to have any direct evidence they don't come out and say it here but they are paving the way for that When considering evidence for the Book of Mormon, there are multiple types that we have to look at. Physical evidence we can divide into two different categories, direct evidence and indirect evidence. Direct evidence is the kind that can be corroborated by the Book of Mormon text itself. It's evidence that is hard to refute and whose connections to the book are, are well, direct. Indirect evidence, on the other hand, is evidence that is circumstantial. In other words, it's 
it only implies that a connection could exist. So in order for us to find evidence of the Book of Mormon, we're going to have, have to dive, dive deep. deep. That's what he says. We're going to have to dive deep. So then they go diving deep. Uh, any thoughts? I've already said my thoughts about it before the clip. Do you have any thoughts about that, Bill? No, no, I'm good. We can. How about you, Dr. Lundwall? They only show indirect evidence. Yeah. Indirect evidence doesn't prove anything. That's the thing. None of this proves the Book of Mormon true. It doesn't even come close. And as Dan Vogel says, what a joke. <laughs> Dan Vogel in his usual direct and inimitable style. So we have the next clip. And here's the deal. Okay, here's what happens. They hire some guys to go out with a boat and some scuba outfits. They go diving down to the bottom of this lake where these guys are telling, you know, the Mormon folk. Yeah, nobody's ever dived here before. And we're going to dive down there. They find like a pot or two, which they think is Mayan. I'm serious. That's it. Oh, but there's also this other part beforehand where they're going to talk about the sunken city that is located there. And actually, I can't remember which is first. So let's go to the clip and find out, shall we? Do you think they have never dived there before? No, in other I don't words, think do you all. put all this time and energy into diving in a place you've never dived before with the possibility you won't find anything at all? I think that I think they took the pots down with them, is what I think. <laughs> it's a tourist thing, right? <laughs> but anyway, here we go. Let's see what happens. This is going to be exciting. At the very bottom of Lake Atitlan. They have found some incredible ruins, including a famous sunken city, or rather a city that was covered by water, that some call the Maya Atlantis. The city was discovered by a Guatemalan diver back in the 1990s and was given the name Samabach. This city is an amazing example of indirect evidence for accounts mentioned in the Book of Mormon. So the Book of Mormon, as many of you know, talks about a great and terrible destruction that occurs in the land when Jesus Christ was crucified. Behold that great city Zarahemla have I burned with fire and the inhabitants thereof. And behold that great city Moroni have I caused to be sunk in the depths of the sea and the inhabitants thereof to be drowned. And behold that great city Moroni ha have I covered with earth and the inhabitants thereof to hide their iniquities and their abominations from before my face. Yea, in the city of Onaiha and the inhabitants thereof, in the city of Mokum and the inhabitants thereof, and the city of Jerusalem and the inhabitants thereof, and waters have I caused to come up in the stead thereof, to hide their wickedness and abominations from before my face, that the blood of the prophets and the saints shall not come up any more unto me against them. Okay, so right after saying that they're not going to do any association of places in the Book of Mormon or geography in the Book of Mormon with places in the real world, uh, it sounds to me like that's kind of what they're doing here, where they're reading the Book of Mormon about all these different cities, by the way, that got covered up <clears throat> with water. Um, so that's one thing. The other thing I have to mention is they have that volcano there in their graphic. There's nothing in the Book of Mormon that talks about any volcanoes. Now, there's destructions that happen, and certainly people have come along, apologists mostly, and extrapolated that into, oh, there must have been a volcano that blew up. But apparently, it was such a small volcano that nobody among the Nephites who were keeping the records even noticed it. 
or wrote it down or thought it was significant in any way. So they, that is a total um, extra scriptural addition to have those volcanoes going off in that graphic. Did you have any thoughts about that, doctor? Well, I, again, uh, one of your tests is temporal. So they, they just link the sunken city to the destruction of the cities in the Book of Mormon. That's 33 CE, plus or minus a few years. Samabah was inundated by water at 300 CE. Uh, we're two and a half centuries off from the scriptures they just quoted. So what are they doing? Wait a second, wait a second. Are you telling me that this city was sunk 300 years after, well, CE, in other words, or 270 years after the date that's given for it in the Book of Mormon? Is that what you're telling me? That's what I'm telling you. Well, why didn't they tell us that? I have no idea. Bill, why didn't they? Have. Why do you think they didn't tell us that? Because again, you want to frame the responses in such a way as to cater uh, feelings and belief in people who want to maintain feelings and belief. I also want to know how many, how many pieces of debris, pottery, even city structure pieces. Are there in lots of lakes and water, uh, bodies of water across the entire planet? Like, I think you almost could go at least a couple dozen places where there are uh, parts of cities uh, in lakes and things where because uh, stuff has changed over the years uh, and because of the way water structures have changed that you end up with, again, this isn't the only city that's underwater. Um, and as you're pointing out, John, we have an exact date for when this happened. It's sort of strange that they bring this one up. Yeah, so I want everyone to ask themselves and ask your friends if they're watching this video and being impressed at all by it. How come they didn't mention that? That seems to be a strange and significant omission on their part. Now we're going to get to the next clip where they talk about the pottery that was found at the bottom of this lake by their intrepid divers. And uh, yeah, let's go. Let's watch that, shall we? remains that no matter how old anything is we know that there are evidences of a people that probably lived around the same time possibly as the nephites there's evidence for that there's artifacts there's remains this has been really exciting alan thank you and your team so much really thank you awesome this way yes this way let's get okay so that's pretty impressive you're laughing there dr lundwall why are you laughing uncontrollably well, he, he did finally give us a time frame around the same time as the Nephites, possibly. There were people who were living here around the around time of the Nephites. Dang, possibly. this is exciting. This is their first evidence for the Book of Mormon. I'm left underwhelmed. What about you, Mr. Real? Around, possibly. First off, the first word he used, around, indicates approximately near. And then he adds possibly, just to clarify it a little more. Uh, it seems like he wants to get as far away from claiming something in actuality as one can. This is their first cannon shot across the bow. Yes. This is it. This has got to be one of their strongest arguments. And this is what they give us. It's really quite astounding. I'm not sure I've ever heard a more qualified statement than the one in that video clip. <laughs> so are we ready to go to the next one? Um Mr. Real. Yes. 
We don't know that Samabach was one of the cities described in the Book of Mormon, but discovering a real sunken city that dates to the approximate time of the devastating destruction described in 3 Nephi in the Book of Mormon is pretty interesting. When we sent divers down into the lake, we had no idea if we would find anything. To our knowledge, these areas had never been explored. Finding artifacts that very well could be remnants of a Maya civilization is so cool. Other sunken ruins have been found in Belize and other parts of the world, along with geological evidence that cataclysmic events also occurred. So taken as a whole, these discoveries help bring the narrative found in 3rd Nephi to life in a whole new and exciting way. The discovery of Samabach is just one of thousands of circumstantial indirect evidences completely unknown in 1830 upstate New York that begin to paint a picture of the reality of the Book of Mormon. As far as evidence goes, I'm not even sure this qualifies as circumstantial evidence for the authenticity of the Book of Mormon. Now, they had to say, I mean, at some point, they know that they've got to say some things that are true. And he does say it here, that there's a bunch of sunken ruins in Belize and all these other places around the world, which immediately undercuts their argument, which is already devastated by the fact they can look anywhere they want in the Western Hemisphere, find a sunken city. Hey, Book of Mormon, look, this was a, the time of Christ, even though he once again says around the time of Christ. You see, when you know what the facts are, and thank you for that, Dr. Lunwall, for that fact. Um, when you know what the facts are, you can see what they're not saying and why they're not saying it. Do you have anything, Bill, to say? Yeah, just he says we don't know that it was one of the cities of the Nephites. Well, we actually know it wasn't, number one. So, and, and the number two is that he said, like, we didn't even know if we dove in this area, if there would be anything. And the trouble is, is that John has explained that uh, historians understand that there was a city. Like, it's already a known fact. If you dive into those waters and you know sort of where you should look, you know you are going to find some things. Right. And the big thing is it's so exciting because they found Mayan pottery at the bottom of a lake. I, okay, I, I, I can see how that might be exciting or interesting, but it has nothing to do with the Book of Mormon. Dr. Lenwell. I just did a podcast on Mormonishry talking about Brant Gardner's response to another podcast I did. Brant Gardner, which is one of the leading, you know, anthropologists of, of Mormon church, says the mine are not Nephite. He unequivocally says that. So so we, we just saw that, uh, oh, look, a Mayan city that uh, sort of possibly dates around the Nephites. What what does that what does that mean? What does that prove? Nothing and nothing. As far as the Book of Mormon goes, Maven? Yeah, I, I don't know if this will derail things, but we have an apologist uh, in the chat. And um, and so I don't know if Dr. Lindwall wanted to address this or if this might come up. But uh, so he's saying these guys, you guys won't listen. The Hopewell Decalogue Stone has the name Mosiah written on the top of it. So the Decalogue there's stone your evidence, was, Dr. John uh, Lindwall. It's supposed to be the Ten Commandments. Boom. It's a hoax. It's a recent, and by that I mean the last, it's probably a 19th century hoax. 
Just Let like get my copy of it. Stone, okay. It's a hoax. In the 19th century, everybody believed, including Joseph Smith, that the uh, the Native Americans were descendants. They were Hebrew. Okay. That's who they were. And people started creating hoaxes in order to buttress that theory. The Decalogue stone is one of those hoaxes. So is the Back Creek stone, which has Yahweh inscribed on it in Hebrew. These are modern day, by that I mean 19th century hoaxes designed to buttress this theory that was prevalent in the 19th century, but which since has been discarded by all reputable scientists. Let me know if I have that right, doctor. Yeah, uh, most scholars uh, uh, insist that th this is a hoax. It's a phylactery found in a mound. And uh, you, sure enough, it has the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments with Moses on it. And uh, here, here's the thing. Um, okay, it has writing. It, it, it's quite sophisticated. This comes from a culture. If you're going to find this in a mound, you should be finding all kinds of cultural context around this you should be finding other writing you should be finding other laws and commandments and phylacteries and, and jewelry you should be finding images of moses you don't find that anywhere so even if this were a real artifact that tells us it's imported from a long way away and so you still can't argue the heartland model with this thing nope and I would say that anybody who's a believing Latter-day Saint and is familiar with the Kinderhook Plates incident should be extremely suspicious of items that are claimed to be found in mounds in North America. Yeah. Just saying. Yeah. And, and John, you made a great connection to our audience in the last time you appeared on our show where you explained and we showed by putting the scriptures up on the screen that the Book of Mormon people were a highly literate people that that the prophet Benjamin could write things on paper and send them out among the people and the people could read them. This was a very literate people according to the Book of Mormon. And as you pointed out just now, and I wanna emphasize it, if that's true, anywhere where the Book of Mormon took place, like every other literate society, we should find lots of artifacts with that society's writing on it and hence, when you find one thing right. that the experts already think is a fake, <laughs> and it also doesn't fit the culture because it has writing on it when no one else in that culture did, uh, more and more red flags should go up. The only people who still believe these hoaxes are real are Mormons. <laughs> right. I mean, there might be a couple of outliers, you know, in the local asylum. But other than that, it's just the Mormons who believe this stuff. These are hoaxes. Okay, and by the way, the Book of Mormon falls into that same category of things that are an artifact that is uh, that is presented as supporting this outdated and disproven theory about the Hebrew ancestry of the Native Americans in America. How's that? And, and I just want to add to this idea that Mosiah's name is written on them. By the way, John, is that is that something that is a fact? Is Mosiah's name written on the Decalogue stone? It's, uh, Moses. Uh, okay. I, th I think, uh, yeah, actually, right right above his head. Okay, but it says Moses, not Mosiah. Uh, I think it's Moshe or something. Yeah, that's yeah. the Hebrew for Moses. Yeah. yeah. Moses. So, so it's, by the way, just notice that that person who we put a comment up on the screen is not only taking the fake and proposing that it's true, he's taking the fake, taking a piece of data off the fake 
and then going even further to try to convince us that it's true when that also doesn't add up. Yeah, it was originally, it was a fake that was designed to corroborate the the Bible and the, the Hebrew ancestry of the Native Americans. And now the Mormons who are the ones who only believe, the only ones left who believe this are changing Moses to Mosiah to make it an evidence from of the Book of Mormon that's being derived from this fake. It's because the Book of Mormon and the Decalogue stone are the same thing. <laughs> okay, very good. Touche. We've got to get going. We've got to get to the second evidence. It, it gets hey. better from here. And we're, we're going to run right into Nahum. We're going to meet Neil Rapoli, which apparently is how you pronounce it. I didn't know how to pronounce it before. And look at the, you see where it says Radio Free Mormon under my face and John Lundwall over there and Bill Reel down there. Notice what they have under each and every one of these experts that they're going to be interviewing to get the, um, the latest scoop on the evidence for the Book of Mormon. I'll tell you in advance. None of these people are scientists. None of them have PhDs in anything relevant to the fields that they're talking about. And almost without exception, each of them will have a little banner underneath it that, that says researcher. And they will identify themselves as a researcher and writer for Scripture Central. These are the qualifications. Neil Rapoli is to the believing side as Bill Real is to the critical side. Neither one of us have the credentials to say we're an expert in anything, and both of us are researchers. One of us tells the truth, though. Hey, everybody. Uh, Neil's a, um, what, what are you, Neil? I am a uh, researcher and writer at Scripture Central. Ah, okay. And, uh, and, and why, are we, uh, why are we here exactly? Uh, well, you said you... By the, By way, the way, that's, that's the clip. clip. Oh, I'm oh, sorry, sorry, still, still up, Bill. Oops, sorry. There we that's go. That's why I'm echoing. And I'm not anymore. That's the clip. And I just wanted that clip because I just love it. And this is going to actually be a running gag. They're treating it as a gag in the, in the movie. And it really is a gag that these guys don't have any credentials. Now, I want to make it clear, all right, that just because you don't have credentials doesn't mean you can't research and find things that are true and correct and accurate. But when your entire cast of characters is just a bunch of schmoes from Scripture Central, who are researchers, especially after your promise at the beginning that you're going to be talking to scientists and archaeologists and you're not going to see any of either in this 43-minute video, then it starts to make an impression on me at least that these opinions are not held by people who are well-educated in their field. I'll just add the camera equipment, the production value of this uh 43 minute video is high. There was a lot of time, energy, resources, financial means that went into making this. If they had, if there was an expert they could put on the screen, they would. And Neil Rapoli saying he's a researcher, putting himself across as an expert is like the newspaper delivery boy saying that he's in the news industry. It's, it's, it's just not a legitimate claim of any sort of expertise. Did you have any comment on this, Dr. Lenwall? I don't mind researchers from Scripture Central doing their thing as long as they're honest with the data. And you should have one or two archaeologists in it, as you promised up front. You should have one or two. All right. So let's go to the next clip where we are introduced to this fascinating uh, altar with the inscription Nahum on it. Okay. So... 
we were talking about Nahum. Is it pronounced Nahum? Yeah. I mean, you can. we don't know how it was pronounced anciently. Okay. The pronunciation guide in the Book of Mormon says Nahum. We have inscriptions that show us that it goes all the way back to Lehi's day. What kind of inscriptions are we talking about? So this right here, this is an inscription that was found in a temple in Marib in Yemen. Okay. And uh, this is a 3D rendering, recreation of it, and you can see this inscription that runs along the top here. Oh yeah, the, the like hieroglyphics or whatever. Yeah, this is actually the ancient South Arabian script. It's used to write Sabian, it's used to write uh, Minaean, uh, a few other languages. And right here you can see the name Nehem or Nahum. I don't see it. I see blue squiggly things. So those those lines, those represent the letters N-H-M. What about the vowels? Can, is there a way to... So in ancient Semitic languages like Hebrew or these ancient South Arabian languages, they didn't write the vowels. So they just write those consonants. So even on the plates where Nephi is writing, in Egyptian this is true as well, you would have just written the letters N-H-M to communicate Nahum. So it could be Nahum, Nahom, like we've yeah, been saying. Or, exactly. Or Nahum or whatever. Okay. Absolutely. Is what I want to point out here, um, they're not going to go really deep into this. We're not going to go deep into it either. But please notice the facility with which Mormon apologists disregard the text and the language of the Book of Mormon, which it is a cardinal point of their faith was received by revelation from God. He said at the beginning, because you know he's paving the way for the fact that nobody that I know of actually translates this three letters from this altar as Nahum as it is in the Book of Mormon, okay? He's immediately trying to get away from that. And what he says is, we don't, even, we don't know how it was pronounced anciently, but the Book of Mormon says Nahum. So it's not really that important what the Book of Mormon says. Just those consonants, that's all we're interested, those consonants. Those vowels are going to get us into trouble later on. You can see it. Otherwise, you wouldn't be saying this. So I just wanted to bring that up. Now, Dr. Lunwall, once again, you're laughing. That is such a good point, RFM. We don't know how they pronounced it. But we do have an ancient text that tells us how to pronounce it. But let's ignore it. <laughs> That's it. That's why I'm laughing. Oh, you, you, you can. I know you don't want to go into detail here, RFM. So I'll just ahead, tease. Bill. I'll just tease it. But we actually do know how it's pronounced because a long, long time ago, the city that's in this spot, with different consonants, by the way, uh, with different vowels. Sorry, by the way, is pronounced differently. Hence, they do have to. I understand why they need to make room for a different pronunciation because they don't want to get caught off guard by somebody pointing that out. Nechem. Yeah. It's, I think, closer to the pronunciation that most scholars would attribute can to I it. Can I put it up on the screen for just a second? What is it? Nechem. <laughs> oh, there it is. There it is. There it is on that map. Good enough. <laughs> that dates to the 19th century. <laughs> Earlier, right? This was seven, yeah, 1787, I think. Yes. So even before the 19th century, yes, there's a map with N-E-H-E-M on it. Yeah. Okay. Hmm. Now we can go to the next one because there's um there's dead bodies to be found. Is there any evidence at all uh, that there were burials 
in or around Nahum proper? Yeah, yeah. There's actually there's actually quite a lot. There was this Italian archaeologist team. They prepared a map that shows a variety of different. Uh, they call them necropolises. They're just oh, yeah. cemeteries, right? Ancient, ancient cemeteries. All the little triangles on this map. And these ones over here are actually closer to the area we want. All these little triangles represent burial areas. And this is that Nehem area right here. So there are burial areas. So there are burial areas in that region. And I came across a museum catalog that had a bunch of tombstones from this general vicinity. The thought dawned on me. Those tombstones have names on them. Within the collection, I think there was like 400 different tombstones in that collection. There were about five or six that had the name Ishmael on oh. them. And of those five or six, uh, there was one that dated to the 6th century oh. BC. Wow. Uh, in fact, I've got it right here. These letters right here, these are the South Arabian letters that would spell out the name Ishmael. I mean, as far as direct evidence, as far as much as I understand of that on our little journey here, this has got to be as direct as we will find, I would think. We will never be, we'll probably never be able to prove if this is the Ishmael yeah. of the Book of Mormon. Uh, but we can certainly say somebody named, named Ishmael, Ishmael is buried there. As far as what we're trying to accomplish, you have set us off on an awesome path. This is great. Thank you so much, Neil. Thank you really, for coming by. Congratulations for the amazing discoveries. Thank uh, you. All right, on to the next. Four quick points. The first one is notice how they've got graveyards everywhere, but they're, they're only interested in this one. That's the first thing. The second thing is this. Um, I suppose that at any place where there is a community of people that has lived there for a period of time, there's probably going to be a graveyard nearby unless they're all immortal okay so i think it's probably very normal that there would be graveyards near cities or places of population the third thing i had to say um and maybe i'll just make this the the last thing i'll say is that did you notice what it was inscribed in south arabian script i'm not sure why it's not written in hebrew Okay, that's one thing. So actually, it's the third thing. And the fourth thing is, I mean, my gosh, can you imagine finding a guy named Ishmael in Arabia? That's that's phenomenal. I got a feeling that Ishmael's got to be like one of the most popular names. It's like John over here, you know, in the English, in the Western world. It's got to be the most common name around. Ishmael, for crying out loud. The son of Abraham through whom that entire tribe and people descended. Dr. Lenwell, your thoughts about this startling discovery? Yeah, you know, look, I, to me, this is probably the strongest thing they've got. And to me personally, it, it's one of those things where that's interesting. What's the temporal, geographic, cultural, linguistic context? How can we tighten this down? And uh, it's very difficult to do because Ishmael is a very popular name. A lot of those grave markers, those gra grave markers, by the way, were uh, taken from the site and then refound out of a basement or, or a tent. So the archaeological context is lost on most of them. Many of them have the name of the deceased with a god. And of course, they're, if, if Ishmael was written with Yahweh, then I'd be interested. Then I'd be, okay, hey, we've got something that is tamping this down but it's not 
and and he says it's dated to the sixth century. It's dated between 400 and 600 BCE. So yeah, that's close. That's close. Um, but again, you, you, you take a fine like this with these generalities and you say, I need 10 more diagnostic pins before I hang my hat on this thing. And, uh, you know, we, and so until I get those, all, all you can do is uh, put that on a shelf and wait for more. Yeah, and even Neil Rapoli says what he has to say, which is there's no way we're ever going to be able to prove that this was the Ishmael from the Book of Mormon. Yeah. Um, I want to note that Scott and Neil both pronounced it Nahem. They both went with the secular expertise on it rather than the revelatory expertise on it, just mm -hmm. FYI. Number two is that he said this was the most direct evidence they had. So this is their best shot. Uh, this is this is it. Now I'm going to throw up here on the screen really quick. This is the stone with a pencil kind of sketch of what the markings are on it. Uh, it does say Ishmael uh, to an extent. By the way, they noted this in the video. There were multiple other ones that said Ishmael, right? And just FYI, as you guys are already pointing out, but I want to hammer it home. The name Ishmael mentioned in the document was a common name in the biblical period, meaning God will hear. It first appears in the Bible as the name of the son of Abraham. You guys pointed that out. Um, it, it talks about in this little paragraph here, this is an expert. This has nothing to do with Mormonism. This, has, this was a secular article on the popularity of the name Ishmael among uh, Middle Eastern cultures, and it's all over the place. What I mean is by this, I would have been surprised if you didn't find at least one gravestone with Ishmael's name written on it in any area where people have been in any time period. Okay. Thank you. Very good. So I think we're ready to go on. And once again, that was a good comment that someone had made. I'm not sure if it was on the screen, but yes, this is as good as it gets. I think it was Dr. Lenwell. This is as good as it gets. It's all downhill from here. And what this amounts to is, I don't know, at best, um, a mild coincidence? I don't think it's that startling. And I, I will tell you this, because last week, uh, for some reason, Summit County in Utah was on my mind because I had read it somewhere, and I didn't know where Summit County, Utah was, okay? So I called up Rebecca on the phone one morning, point blank, first words out of my mouth were, where the hell is Summit County, Utah? And she freaks out. She says, what are you doing? I said, I'm just asking you a question. She says, I am at work. I'm on my computer. And I have never done this before. But I have Summit County pulled up on my computer screen right now. And you call up and ask me where's Summit County. And she said she was getting, you know, freaked out by it. And, of course, I told her I was standing behind her looking over her shoulder. So, you know, even remarkable coincidences do happen with some frequency, but that's why they're called coincidences. And this isn't even a coincidence because we know the culture has a boatload of Ishmaels. Let's say 5%. It's like having John here in the, in the United States, right? Let's say 5% of the people in the uh, Middle Eastern cultures have the name Ishmael. You're going to find Ishmael gravestones everywhere you look from every time period. This isn't actually interesting to me 
at all. I would have expected to find this. And they treat it. They act like we can't say for sure, but this might be the actual Ishmael from right. the Book of Mormon. This might be a sacred relic of Ishmael. And it's just not. It's just an Ishmael. And if in I can just ask a question that's based in the context of the Book of Mormon, here's a small group of people that have left Jerusalem by night and in haste. They're traveling secretly. They don't want to be found. The text makes that explicit. They are not allowed to make fires, so they have to eat raw meat. The Lord makes it sweet unto them. But by the way, that's a violation of the law of Moses because they are eating blood in their meat. They're not cooking it. But that's how important it is for them to move without being noticed. And it is strange that this same group of, of people, when one of their members dies, would then bury him in a burial ground with everybody else who's in this city area. I mean, why would they do that? They're just going to bring attention to themselves. You just put Ishmael six feet under in the desert, put some rocks on top, call it good. They're, they're given a compass because they're out in the wilderness all by themselves, right? And... Uh... This this village, it's a large settlement on a major spice route. So, yeah, as soon as Ishmael dies, you go to the nearest Starbucks. No. Uh, look, you can arrange the data to make this compelling. You can arrange the data to make this not compelling. And that's why you have to have several more diagnostic pins besides what you're giving us. Otherwise, you know, interesting, but it, it's indirect. It's not direct. They called it direct evidence. It's circumstantial. Right. Weak but it's as close as they're going to get to direct evidence. Yeah, but this is it's weak. Not. This is weak circumstantial evidence. It, it'd be like uh, it'd be like me going through the phone book and finding a John and going like, you know, this could be the this could be this could be the John. This could be the one. He's still it's around, not. I hear. Yeah. He probably has a phone. Find an Ishmael in the Americas from the right time period. You'll at least pique my interest then. Yeah, in the Americas. That would yeah. be interesting. Yeah. Uh, okay, so now we get to the third evidence, which is going to be chiasmus. It's going to feature my good friend, Jack Welch. We're still doing chiasmus, huh? Well, we're doing it for number three. No, no, no. I mean, I mean, in 2024, as evidence of the Book of Mormon, we're still talking about chiasmus. Yes, they are. Okay, here we go. Way modern documents are. Tell me about chiasmus. You you kind of discovered chiasmus in the Book of Mormon. You're right, Scott. That's uh, that happened when I was a missionary in 1967, and it changed my life in a lot of ways. And uh, but I studied, and many others have come along with me, and we've studied the Book of Mormon very carefully. There are close to 300 excellent unusually fine utilizations of this chiastic principle. The, the Hebraic way of thinking and writing was not linear, but more inverted, where you go through a set of ideas in one order and turn around and go through that set backwards. We don't write that way, but people in the ancient world, especially in the uh, Jewish world, uh, when you get back into the uh, Hebrew texts, you yeah. can see these things in ways that people in Joseph Smith's day had begun to suspect, but no one really understood. Yeah. Well, I hope to be able to dig deeper into that in the future, but 
For now, it's just great to know that chiasms, uh, they're there, they're abundant, they're evident, and there's no way in the world Joseph Smith would have known about them. At this point in my journey, I am blown away by the greatness of the evidence, to borrow Elder Holland's term. But in the back of my mind, I can hear the voices of detractors. Okay. okay. So the first thing I want to point out there, which is really exciting to me, is here's um, Jack Welch, who did discover this. It was a significant discovery that he made when he was on his mission in Germany back in 1967 of finding this um, chiasmus in the Book of Mormon. And I think it was uh, it's a great discovery, and uh, it's come a long way. It's being featured now in this, this movie. But did you notice, everybody, did you notice how carefully and qualifiedly John Welch put the knowledge of chiasmus in Joseph Smith's day? Because he knows it had been discovered in the Bible. It had been written about in books, at least one in particular, prior to the Book of Mormon. And so he's saying, you know, uh, it was just sort of being discovered and people were just trying to figure it out. You heard him say that, right, to the host? The host turns around and recapitulates that very qualified and modest statement into, there's no way that Joseph Smith could have known about chiasmus. He leaps into an absolute statement, which John Welch, his expert whom he's talking to, did not. So that's the first thing. So can I just tell you a couple things about chiasmus? I, me and chiasmus go way back. I discovered it, now I'm a 36. Unfortunately, it was quite a few years after Jack Welch had. But it was an exciting experience, let me tell you that. Anyway, um, here's the thing. There is chiasmus in the Book of Mormon. Absolutely there is. But people took this idea of chiasmus in the Book of Mormon, faithful members, and they started messing around with it and finding valid and concrete examples of chiasmus, not only in the Book of Mormon, but in the Doctrine and Covenants. And I remember this happening back in the 1980s. I'm an apologist, see, Dan Vogel, absolutely. Um, he said the same thing right there. I didn't want it to be there. I don't want chiasmus in the Doctrine and Covenants, okay? Because if chiasmus is being used as an evidence that the Book of Mormon is an ancient book written by real ancient Hebrews in an authentic ancient Hebrew literary style, then it has to stand for the same thing in the Doctrine and Covenants. Otherwise, it doesn't stand for that in the Book of Mormon. Does that make sense? I didn't want there to be chiasmus in the Doctrine and Covenants, but dang it, there is. And the fact that it's present in the Doctrine and Covenants completely undercuts any evidentiary value it has for the ancientness and authenticity of the Book of Mormon. Dr. Lundwall, your thoughts? Uh, that is a very good point. Again, that's it. Um, can I throw here up on the screen just really quick? There's You're Alma always 30. throwing up on the screen, Bill. There's, you should see a doctor about that. I should. There's Elma 36. It's actually quite impressive. It's a, it's a really significant chiastic structure. I discovered it. Yes. Thank you. So here, you know, the fact is chiasmus appears naturally in all kinds of places. It's not even hard to make a chiastic paragraph. It's just writing things in one order and then writing them again in reverse order. In fact, in this very paragraph, I made some chiasmus myself. It's not rocket science. Chiasmus is a natural way of ordering information, and that's a fact. Now, there's that. So you, there's just an easy one to write. Shows up in Dr. Seuss. 
Okay. But the, all right, it's a smaller one than Alma 36. So, okay. Here's a little bigger one from Solomon Spaulding's manuscript, which I am not at all suggesting makes up the Book of Mormon in any way. But what it does show is that a contemporary author did have the ability to have chiastic structures in his writings, and this is almost always going to be subconscious. He didn't intentionally do this. It just shows up because it's the way our human brains spill over information and then spill our way back out of it. Now, here's a big one. This is The Late War. Gilbert Hunt, 21-pair chiastic structure, comparable to Alma 36, and it's in a book that many think shares almost the same sort of language structures as the Book of Mormon. Chiasmus in 2024 is no longer in evidence for the Book of Mormon, and most apologists no longer speak of it. This hurts my heart, Bill. Tis life. I think whoever composed the Book of Mormon certainly understood chiasmus and intentionally used it, but that's no proof for the uh, antiquity of the Book of Mormon. Especially when the same individual who produced the Book of Mormon produced the Doctrine and Covenants, which bears the same hallmarks. <laughs> Wait, mm. On Just the saying. <laughs> All right, and that's pretty much it, isn't it? For this particular one, there's not much else to say. So we go mm -hmm. to the next one. So we're done with evidence three. There are five in all. We go to the fourth one. Now, fourth one surprised me a bit because we're going to go to horses. And horses in the Book of Mormon is not its strongest suit. But we're going to pretend it is for our fourth evidence in this movie. And it was Stegosaurus, Brontosaurus, and T-Rex. And now you have these crazy. <laughs> hey, hey. How are you, Scott? Matt? Right, it's Matt. That's Matt, right, Matt. Matt Roper, and you are. I was trying to explain. What are you? I am a researcher and writer at Scripture Central. Okay. What kind of evidence are we going to be talking about that would bring us to a place like this? Well, we're going to talk about a different kind of evidence, uh, an evidence related to. What okay, and I wanted that clip up there because once again, Matt Roper, what are you? It's a salient question. But anyway, you get the tag, right? The tagline. He's a researcher. He says, I'm a researcher and writer for uh, Scripture Central. It's like all these guys graduated from the same school. So that's really all I had to say about that. That's why I included that in there. Because I just wanted you to see this is a running gag. And it's going to be uh, done for all it's worth with the final individual. Okay. And we'll get to that in a second. But he's going to talk to him about horses and horse bones. And he's going to actually advocate not for uh, loan shifting with names being deer or tapir being called horses because the, the Nephites come from a society that had horses, you know, way back in 600 BC. No, it's the real thing. He's going to argue that there really were horses in Book of Mormon times, and he's got proof of it. Now, listen very carefully to what he says. There will be a test on this after this clip. In. Wow. Cool. Our, our friends uh, here at the museum have graciously let us come back to one of their labs. Book of Mormon mentions the horse uh, as being one of the animals they found on the land when the family arrived. Early readers of the Book of Mormon uh, who were somewhat skeptical, um, they would make comments or claims like, well, the Book of Mormon mentions horses, the Book of Mormon mentions elephants. But we know that these animals weren't here before the time of Columbus. They never existed in the Americas until the Europeans came. 
That's their claim. And so that was the initial claim. And for, for much of the 19th century, that was what people thought. Now, one example of the new evidence that we've seen in, in just, uh, just recently um, is a former professor of mine, uh, Professor Wade Miller. Um, he and a team of paleontologists down in Mexico they uh, encountered a, a site in their, in their work down in San Luis Potosí, uh, Mexico. And they did a, a very careful excavation of these different layers. And then they looked at the horse remains and using uh, scientific methods, they were able to date material that was closely associated with each of the bones. And they dated to the time of the Book of Mormon. The horse bones? The horse bones. And there, was, there were six, I think, as I recall, in their published report. Uh, that had dates, the date to the time of the Book of Mormon spanning from about 1300 BC to about 380. You know, uh, not everything has to be concretely proven to us because we have to exercise faith, but these kind of things come awfully close and they become very supportive evidence of the truth of things, of the truth of the Book of Mormon and of Joseph Smith, even if they don't flat out prove that the Book of Mormon is what he claims that it is. You know what I mean? That's right. Well, I'm getting all sorts of signs from the sidelines. Um, now, I got to say a couple things about this. Were you paying attention to what Matt Roper said, the researcher and writer? What? Okay, first off, here's the truth, okay? And you correct me if I'm wrong, Dr. Lundwall. The absolute majority stance of scholars today on January 24th, 2024, is that horses, as we understand them, did not exist in the Americas between the time they were extinct, became extinct around uh, 10,000 years ago, up until the time they were reintroduced after Columbus discovered America by the Spanish, okay? That is still the way it is. Now, correct me if I'm wrong on that, Dr. Lundwall. Uh, there's some uh, evidence that uh, a mini horse was in North America 8,000 years ago, 6,000 BCE. That's as far as they can track uh an equus species the reason i wanted you to confirm that is because did you hear what matt roper said and how he framed this that little dickens matt what he said was early readers of the book of mormon thought that the presence of the word horse in the book of mormon was anachronistic and then he said that's what early readers of the book of mormon thought and then he says, for, mo for much of the 19th century, that's what people thought. Now, that's true. The problem is he's insinuating that it's changed after the 19th century. But no, Matt, you know as well as we do that that's what people thought, i.e. scientists, i.e. archaeologists, i.e. the people who study this kind of stuff and aren't just researchers for some religious institution trying to prove a religious text to be historical. This is what they believed in the 20th century. It's also what they believe in the 21st century. It's what they believe when you're talking about this, Matt, and your choice of words, while technically true, I got to give you credit for that. It is true that people in the 19th, 19th century thought that. But when you say it to the exclusion of the 20th and 21st century, that's when you're being a little deceptive, in my opinion. Your thoughts, Mr. Real. Yeah, I, I just want to share, I'll put another little slide up here. Uh, I just want to note 
that notice what apologists really don't want to deal with. So for instance, in uh, Mormon 924, it is almost identical to Mark chapter 16, verse 17 and 18. And biblical scholars say that the verses after 16, verse 9 are an, are written by a later author. They're not original to the text. Hence, they have no business being in the Book of Mormon. Also note that Paul's writings also find their way into the mouth of Book of Mormon authors, uh, Mormon or Moroni. Apologists don't really want to deal with that either. Instead, we, we what we do is draw attention to six horse bones. And I just want to note for the believer or the critic who's listening, notice how we give weight to certain sides of evidence and what has to be done for us to give preference to evidence that is weaker and to ignore evidence that is stronger. The anachronistic New Testament evidence in the Book of Mormon is significantly stronger evidence against the historicity of the Book of Mormon than six horse bones, even if they do date to the time of the Book of Mormon as evidence for the Book of Mormon. And I also just want to note the other thing that he said was that it was material closely associated with the bones that dated to the correct time as the Book of Mormon, not the bones themselves. What is the significance of that last observation of Bill, Dr. Lenwall? Jeez. <laughs> Uh, look, you know, the bones they were showing in that video clip were not the horse bones. You've got uh, like four teeth, a little bit of a jaw, part of a jaw, a little bit of a tibia. Uh, these are small samples and they could not carbon date them. And so they had to date the bones by dating the ash. There's ash in the strata surrounding it, probably from, you know, fires, nature. Um, <clears throat> uh, so so you're not getting a, a date on the bone and the date on the date in the strata according to the report uh is 1350 bce to 300 ce um so uh that's a 1600 year span yeah it's a 1600 year span but also this these bones belong I mean, there's a lot of uh, debate as to exactly what horse species survives, how, how far it survives. Again, this is where you need, you put a paleontologist on screen and you interview them and they give you the full range of facts. That's what you do uh, right here, right now, but they don't. And I, again, just finally, those horse bones um, appear to belong to either a... Uh, as they admit, a mid-sized or small horse. That is a, a undomesticated animal that's the largest would be like the size of a zebra. The smallest would be the size of a sheep. <laughs> this is what's pulling your chariot. And I, again, so you need geographic, temporal, cultural, and uh, linguistic evidences. If there were horses, and of course, horses are mentioned in the Book of Mormon with chariots. Uh, and the king, the horses pull the chariots for the king. If if that was happening, you would find that on murals carved in stone. This is a royal emblem uh, displaying royal power. So you would find iconography of horses and chariots everywhere in whatever location the Book of Mormon took place, and you find zero, zero. 
I have to respectfully correct you on that, Dr. Lundwall. Actually, the Book of Mormon does mention horses and it does mention chariots, but it never says that the horses pull the chariots. The closest it gets to that is in Alma chapter 18, where our hero Ammon is found in the king's stables getting his horses and chariots ready to take the king to a distant land. So hold on a minute, RFM. You're, ag you're agreeing with the apologist that the Book of Mormon, I know you're being facetious, the Book of Mormon does not connect the dots that the chariots were pulled by the horses. Yet the scripture in the Book of Mormon says that the horses are being tended to alongside the chariots and that on in some level that's connected to how the group of people will travel to a distant land or at least the, at least the king the king will travel by chariot but uh, there's nothing that actually says that the horses that are being made ready along with the chariot for the trip pull the chariot so there hmm. mr real hmm. mormon apologetics one you zero <laughs> By the way, if anybody doesn't know this, this is actually an apologetic that Mormons have used. And heaven forbid, I probably did too back in the day. Yeah. It's so disingenuous. I've heard them say the Book of Mormon doesn't say the Tower of Babel. So you can't say the tower, everyone where the languages were divided was the Tower of Babel. Right. It just it, says the it's tower. So the disingenuous. Tower. Well, Nobody has done more damage to the text of the Book of Mormon and its plain meaning than Mormon apologists. Amen. Okay, so now we get to number five. And here, they throw us a total curveball because now they're going to go to, is it Tennessee? I think it's Tennessee. It could be Kentucky, but I think it's Tennessee. I always get those two mixed up. Forgive me, I've never lived there, obviously. But I know they're next to each other, and they're nowhere near central america these are in the heartland and we're going to go visit a mound and we're going to find evidence for the book of mormon now not only in central america not only in mexico but all the way up in tennessee and here's the the this next clip this is where they really play it up we get to find out that this guy that they're going to talk to i think his name is maggleby seems like a very nice fellow um not only is he not an archaeologist uh he's a he's another researcher but he knows some archaeologists so there's hope well, there he is well hello scott how are you sir <laughs> welcome to pinson mound state archaeological park this is awesome right here in tennessee i just live a couple hours away this is kirk magleby from scripture central who's like uh what are you an archaeologist a scientist i'm an a... amateur archaeologist <laughs> he's our own indiana on, magleby i've been on a number of digs i i uh, have friends that are archaeologists but i'm not a credential archaeologist gotcha okay yeah, but i do have a passion about book he's a researcher not an not an archaeologist he knows archaeologists though and here's the thing okay None of the archaeologists that he knows believe that this is evidence at this mound for the Book of Mormon. They probably don't believe in the Book of Mormon at all. If there were an archaeologist, an actual archaeologist who did believe that, that's the person who'd be in front of the camera and not this guy. Your thoughts, Dr. Lenwall? Yeah, again, that's right. They just... I don't mind that he's there doing his thing, but put the archaeologist there too. And and 
lay it out. Put the paleontologists there as well. Lay it out. Put the linguists uh, there in Yemen by the altar inscription and lay it out. But you don't get that. No, and if you take the inferences one step further, the fact he knows archaeologists, he's not an archaeologist. These other archaeologists are not in front of the camera. What that indicates is that real archaeologists would not support his interpretation of the evidence at this mound. And that's why they're not in front of the camera, because real archaeologists don't believe this. What is his interpretation, RFM? Oh, <laughs> let's play the next clip and find out. So th this is the time period when the Sol's Mound was built, the middle woodland period. This is about the time of Christ to approximately 500 AD. So these mounds that we see here right now are from Book of Mormon times. Yes, they are. Okay. And there we go. I'm not sure where Bill went, but yeah, we lost Bill. He's got to take care of something. What I want to say about this <laughs> is this. All right. This is such a curveball because honestly, what they're saying now and what they'll say with this Mackleby, Mackleby fellow at the end of this interview is the same thing is it doesn't make any difference where they are in either of the Americas. If you find something that you think can by hook or by crook be used to support the Book of Mormon, we're there. The thing that's surprising about this is that at first I thought this was going to be a standard kind of uh, farms or interpreter or Mesoamerican theory. For those of you who don't know, there's two main schools, right, of geography in the Book of Mormon. There's those who are, they call it a limited geography, though both of them are kind of limited. So I call it Mesoamerican. And they focus in Mesoamerica. And that's the only place where it takes place is Mesoamerica up to southern Mexico. So something in Tennessee does not fit that theory. It contradicts that theory, in fact. There's only one person, one Nephite, who ever made an incursion into the heartland. And for purposes of our discussion, I'm just going to say what basically the United States is now, okay? Obviously, it didn't exist back then. But that territory. So there's only one person, according to the Mesoamerican geography school, who made it up to the United States. And that was Moroni when he's carting the, the plates all over. And this is after all the other Nephites got destroyed down there in southern Mexico. So this hill in Tennessee is in direct contradiction to the Mesoamerican theorist. It's like they're putting a sop in there to try and appeal to both parties. Let me describe the other party. The other party is the Heartland theorist, right? And they are located, they have located the Nephites civilization up in really in the United States, mostly the Eastern and the, the Midwest of the United States is where they say it all happened. None of it happened down in Mexico, according to them. None of it happened in Central America. So they start with Lake Atitlan. They go to Horsebones in Mexico. Both of those are contradicted by the heartland theory. Now they're going to the, the mound in Tennessee and for the heartland theory, but that contradicts the Mesoamerican theory. So what they're doing is not only are they roaming far and wide anywhere they can, they are actually taking different pieces of what they are pleased to call evidence 
from mutually contradictory theories of where the Book of Mormon took place. And I think that's probably not a good way to prove the Book of Mormon is true. What do you think, Mr. Real? It shows if if they pick contradicting locations and present evidence from each as if it is significant, what it tells you is that they don't have the ability to discern what actual evidence is or what significant evidence is, because at least one of the two, and you've already pointed out, is three locations they use. Only one of them can be right, hence the other two places the evidence cannot be evidence of the Book of Mormon, and they can't tell the difference. They are right. able to know which one is the actual Book of Mormon location, and at least some of what they're doing, they're self-admitting is not evidence of the Book of Mormon, but they can't tell that it isn't. Dr. Lenwell, what do you think? I love the shot of the museum. Did you, did you notice what was in the museum? There was... There was bones, teeth, stone tools, pictures of people wearing loincloths and carrying sticks and rocks. What wasn't there, John? What was missing? Urbanization, agriculture, writing, horses. Everything. Oh. Mr. Real, do we have the next clip from... which is the second largest mound here at Pinson State Archaeological Park. It's a good size. Yeah, it's nowhere near as big as the one we were on. This is more typical of most of the mounds that you'll see across North America. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, the one we were at, uh, Saul's Mound, was enormous. Yeah. So you recall there are two kinds of mounds, ceremonial mounds and burial mounds. Right, yeah. And would you like to know where in the text of the Book of Mormon mounds like this appear? Uh, yes, I would, because okay. I don't let me show you in the, Let me show you in the text how this is part of what's in the Book of Mormon. This is the part that I was hoping to see. Let's go to Ether chapter 11, verse 6, okay? Six. And this is a proxy about great calamity in the land, great curse, and their great destruction, and bones shall become as heaps of earth upon the face of the land. You are looking at heaps of earth that contain bones, okay? Yeah. This phrase, heaps of earth, appears six different times in the text. This particular phrase is all over the text, and that's what we're seeing here. So what you're telling me is that what we're seeing here is found in the Book of Mormon. It absolutely is found in the text of the Book of Mormon, yes. But we can't, we cannot absolutely say that we have... Okay, so I'll, I'll make a couple of comments here, right? First off... Mr. Magleby has already said that these mounds date to the Middle Woodland period, which he has defined as being from the time of Christ. So I think that might be a bit early for the Middle Woodland period, but we'll use it anyway. Up until around 500 CE. Okay. And so now he goes to the Book of Mormon and he reads from the Book of Ether, which is the Jaredites who lived well before the time of Christ, okay? So he's going to the wrong time period in the Book of Mormon to prove that this is a real Book of Mormon mound. That's the first thing. Second thing is, when he reads that passage 
from the book of Ether that doesn't describe what that mound is. What it says is that bones will be heaped up as if they are a mountain or a mound, okay? He's the, the Book of Mormon is describing a cairn of human bones. It's not describing a mound of earth in which human bones are buried. But Mr. Magleby wants to believe that's what it's saying so much that he interposes that interpretation on a text that does not say what he's interpreting it as meaning. And finally, can I just say this last thing? I'm sorry, I don't want to take all the good stuff, but it is my show. I mean, I'm in charge of it and everything. <laughs> Actually, I'll just see if either of you touch on it. Okay, Dr. Lenwall, your thoughts about this? Yeah, I mean, truly, when he first started reading Ether, you know, when are the Jaredites again? Well, about from the time of the tower. Yeah, the great right. tower. Which is not, not necessarily the Tower of Babel. <laughs> but they have their final battle, uh, basically... Well, when is it? Right before uh, the Nephites come, right? And so between 2000, 2200 BCE to 600 BCE. Uh, so out of time, right? Uh, is it out of place? Well, again, we're, we're now in uh, Guatemala, Mexico, and now we're in Tennessee. So what's the place? Where is it? We're out of place. And of course, uh, sure enough, there are several, uh, the few references of mounds in the Book of Mormon refer to mounds of bones, just as you described. That is not what these mounds are. And to make that uh, assertion is, is um, I, I would say that's incredibly uh, blindsided, uh, disingenuous, except I think he is a true believer. And so that's, that's not disingenuous. He's two feet in the monomormon theory where everything is filtered through this cosmovision of the Book of Mormon being historical and in Tennessee. And so this is what you're going to get with Mr. Magleby. This is why we need fewer researchers and more archaeologists in this movie. Mr. Real. So I just want to note, Dan Vogel says part of the point I want to make. Uh, how is this evidence of anything? Joseph Smith knew all of this and more. I just want to note, so I'm going to put, uh, let me put my thing here up on the screen. All right, so let me get to the front of the camera. This is the mound builder myth, fake history and the hunt for a lost race. Uh, I just want to note here what it says. The mound builder myth is the first book to chronicle the attempt to recast the Native American burial mounds as the work of a lost white race of true Native Americans. Everybody and their brother in the 1800s was talking about Indian burial mounds. It was it uh, it was a nothing burger. Uh, the Book of Mormon and trying to explain how the Native Americans got here, it would be weird if they didn't include burial mounds in the text. And as John points out, wrong time, wrong place. They're all the way, as you already said it, they're all the way in Tennessee. This is becoming a joke. And here's the other thing I want to finish with in this section. Every LDS apologist researcher who's involved in this project, you're all liars and scam artists. You all agreed to participate in this video saying carefully worded uh, articulations of things that sound like belief promoting evidence, but in reality is just BS and you've intentionally lied to people. 
You are the worst kind of human beings who present yourself as experts and say BS that even you don't believe because it's why you had to word it carefully to begin with. You're, you're scam artist, Neil Rapoli, and the other two guys too, all three researchers. Well, you certainly put it better than I could have, but that was the one thing I, I was going to say, and I wanted to leave it for you to say, and I'm glad you did. You said it much better than I could, which is the implication is left here in this movie that Joseph Smith didn't know about these mounds. Everybody How could knew. He know that? They never say what you just said, Bill. I mean, look, it's 1834, I believe, is the year for Zion's camp, all right? And Joseph Smith is leading a ragtag bunch of Mormons a thousand miles from Ohio to Missouri. And they, during their trip, they come across a big mound and it's a burial mound and they find the bone. And there's the story about Zelf, the white Lamanite. Everybody knows that there were different accounts that were written of this in none of those accounts. Do they have Joseph Smith coming upon this mound and saying, what the hell is this? <laughs> Because everybody knew what they were. This is the mystery. This is what was left by the prior inhabitants. And so all these myths and all these stories originated around them. And Joseph Smith knew about them. Everybody knew about them. And that's documented in that book that you held up there. Can I just say, too, the fact that everybody was talking about mounds in Joseph Smith's day, it's actually sort of... Dis, it's actually evidence against the truth claims of the church that these guys couldn't find a mound from the ether period and point to that one. They should have easily been able to do that too, and they didn't. Um, wrong time, wrong place when everybody in the 1800s knew that these things existed and were trying to use them to explain who the Native Americans were and where they came from. Yes, very good. Did you want to add anything to that, Doctor? Yeah, you know, in the early... 1800s there were thousands of mounds most of them are small most and you know almost all of them are gone now they're underneath highways and home depots um but uh this was you were surrounded by this and of course who made them where are the people that's right so all these traditions and folklore arise out of it so that's all i mean look there's again uh there's in the heartland model there's no writing there's no uh urbanization until far after the book of mormon period uh there's no agriculture which drives urbanization until far after the book of mormon period uh and so they have mounds and they have testimonies and and there you go my hope is that if they keep digging they will find almond joys Remember, what's the tagline for this show? A Marvelous Work, colon, what? And a blunder. Oh, th this show, the real show? It's no, yeah. a, a Marvelous Work, colon, how great the evidence. The greatness of the, the evidence. greatness of the evidence. Because they're quoting from Elder Holland. That's their kowtow to him. But that's it. The greatness of the evidence. Yeah. So this, I, and this is their first show. So I, I presumably this is some of their best stuff. And it's supposed to be the greatness of the evidence. You know what? If they named it the greatness of the spiritual witness and sat around the campfire, I'd get that. But that's not what they're doing. No, absolutely not. And it's unfortunate choice of words. It's a classic case of overpromising and under delivering. Yeah.
So we've got another clip. We're almost to the end here, folks. So hang in there. And the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has not ever once said North America, South America, Central America, this is where the book, the Lord, I should say, himself is now. There is no revealed geography for the Book of Mormon. It has never been revealed to any of the prophets. Yeah. And that's why on the church's website today, the uh, Book of Mormon geography um, uh, gospel topics essay has two things. That's all it says. These are the two things that we can depend on because this has come right from the prophet and the uh, 12 apostles. Number one, the Book of Mormon is historical. So those people are out there saying, no, Nephi was just a figment of somebody's imagination. It's just a historical fiction, okay? Uh, They've got to deal with the fact that the prophet says, no, it was a historical. It happened, it's true. These people were real. And then the second thing it says, it happened somewhere in the Americas. Somewhere. Now, that's a beautiful thing. Yes. Suppose that you lived right here. We're in the Jackson Ward in the Memphis North Stake, okay? That's where we're at today. Would this be cool that you could liken the scriptures unto yourselves? Yeah, that's true. That's pretty cool, right? Good point, yeah. And uh, say, you know what? I've got some stuff in my backyard that seems to have some relevance to the Book of Mormon. Right. Now, uh, if I was in uh, the Los Altos Litoral Stake on the shores of Lake Titicaca in Bolivia, and I've got this awesome site called Tiwanaku just down the road, do you think the Lord intends me to liken this unto myself? I would hope so. <laughs> uh, again, uh, this, I think, is a beautiful thing that yeah. so many people can say, this is my book. I feel comfortable here. I belong here with this book. That's awesome. Wow. What a great way to put it, truly. Kirk, thank you so much. Oh, it's been my pleasure, Scott. Fantastic. Let's go take a look at Twin Mounds. This one actually had my jaw on the floor. So the like in the scriptures unto yourselves section of the Book of Mormon now becomes liken the archaeological ruins to the Book of Mormon. No matter where they are, no matter what time period, it's all Book of Mormon. And he goes so far as to Bolivia. I mean, what the heck was that about? Bolivia? That's not on anybody's map of the Book of Mormon. That's southwest of Brazil, for crying out loud. I mean, that's where, um, oh gosh, who was it? It was Paul Newman and Robert Redford. They met their end right at the end of the movie, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. This is on nobody's map. It's not on the Heartland map. It's not on the Mesoamerican map. This is way out in DFE. And he's saying, oh, by the way, they've got these real cool ruins down the road, and those are as much Book of Mormon as this mound that we're in at Tennessee. And I think that that part may be the closest thing he said to the truth, that they are just as much evidence in Bolivia as this mound is in Tennessee of the Book of Mormon, except he means it in a positive way. Dr. Lundwald. There, there's a shadow side to this line of thinking. And look, you are now saying you can liken the Book of Mormon to yourself no matter what archaeological bric-a-brac you have in your backyard. It does not matter. South America, Central America, North America. Canada, maybe. Can, can, right. Canada, the Arctic, whatever. doesn't matter. Look, there, there's a parenthetical here. You, you go to any culture and you say, you are the descendants of the Book of Mormon, which means your forefathers are apostates. You fell away from the covenant and now you can return. I've got the book. <laughs> uh, so re- remember, the Book of Mormon spells out the loss of the covenant path, right? And so uh, if you are going to then place 
all indigenous peoples, no matter where they're at, all across the Americas, as this is your book, you too killed the Nephites. <laughs> I, I, I think that's incredibly damaging. And then you saw it as, well, you can join the church and regain the covenant and go to heaven. Oh, God. Uh, this is why the standard approved for the Book of Mormon is in its historicity. You have to prove it. And you know what? You've got to start with a location. You don't get to pick Bolivia, Guatemala, Mexico, and Tennessee. You pick a location, and then you, you prove it there. In 2024, if you do not have a location, it didn't happen. That's the truth. There is a bit of a anomaly in believing the prophet when he says that the Book of Mormon is, is historical and also believing the prophet when he says, I don't have any clue where it happened. So it's real, but beyond that, I got nothing. Bill, what if, do you think? If you're tan and you're not white, you must be Lamanite. Um, I just want to say for the record, Johnny LBS, Cochran lives. There wasn't a second Watson letter. We all know that because we covered that. Mm -hmm. But there was, a, but there was a first Watson letter, and the first Watson letter actually did iterate what the first presidency said, which was that we do know where the Book of Mormon took place, and it's in upstate New York. Those guys can't even be honest about this; they're lying about everything. I love you, Bill. That is exactly an excellent point because although it doesn't say where every single thing in the Book of Mormon took place, it does say where two huge battles took place both the extinction battles of the jaredites both sides as well as the nephites just the one side the lamanites live millions of people died on this hill and they are specific and the first presidency has said it was kumora in upstate new york that's where it happened Prophet and the said. apologist the mesoamerican uh, theorist uh, led by dan peterson and the late bill hamblin lied their asses off in order to try and get away from this because this crucified their attempts to put these great battles in southern mexico in accordance with their mesoamerican theory and we went over that in uh it was an earlier episode of mormonism live i don't use that uh verb lightly but they totally lied their asses off and they still are well bill isn't but um dan is yeah, and not to go into great detail there, but after that episode, one of our listeners, who is a friend of Watson, reached out to him, and then we ended up publishing his response. And his response was, for the record, there never was a second Watson letter. Yes, the first Watson letter says it's in New York. Then they, they fabricated these, these apologists whose aim and goal is only to find the truth. They fabricated the existence of a second letter that hedged on that. And so that they could work their theory into it where they couldn't with the first letter. These people know it who are making this movie. And what they said was the leaders of the church, the prophets have never said where the Book of Mormon took place. That's not true. They have said where the final battles took place at the hill designated Camorra in upstate New York. And that is a glaring omission on their part, I think. Dr. Lenwell. The one thing the Heartland model has going for it is for the first half of the church, the prophets, seers, and revelators said it happened in the Heartland model. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, they've got the words of the prophets That's on their right. side. They don't have any kind of culture or society uh, in this area of the heartland that matches what it was that's described in the Book of Mormon. The people down, the Mesoamerican theorists, they have the culture, right? They have the advanced kind of culture. They have at least a system of writing, which is essential. But they have to deal with the fact that they're contradicting all of the early prophets' declarations about it, including the 1990 letter. It's not so early from the first presidency saying, nope, happened in New York. So these um, both of the, uh, the theories have things that are more positive for them, but they also suffer from fatal weaknesses. Just we have another slight, just a slight correction. The Mesoamerican model does not have culture on its side. The Book of Mormon designates a specific kind of culture that exists nowhere in Mesoamerica, pre-Columbian Mesoamerica. So, uh, you know, the Heartland model, it doesn't have agriculture, writing, urbanization. Uh, so that that's impossible. But it does have the opinions of the prophets. The Mesoamerica model has writing, urbanization, agriculture, but it's all culturally out of place. So that model is as flawed as the Heartland model, and it doesn't have the prophets on its side. <laughs> Boom. Thank you for the clarification, Dr. Lundwall. I appreciate that. RFM, why, when everybody believed that the Book of Mormon took place in upstate New York, as evidenced by everything the early leaders had said, plus the hill Camorra itself, was there a need to move the hill to an ambiguous place in South Central America? Yes, because archaeological uh, excavations have proven one thing beyond a shadow of a doubt, and that is that there was no big battle much less the massive battle and two of them that are described in the book of mormon that happened in or around the hill Cumorah. it is a clean site yeah there's the, there's nothing there the location gets moved because it had to because using that location moving forward simply didn't hold up right and rod meldrum who is of course the probably the best known proponent of the heartland theory he solves this problem by saying, well, of course there aren't any, isn't anything there because the Lamanites stripped all of the Nephites of their armor and everything else and all, you know, the, the arrows, the everything, they just stripped it all and they took it with them. At which point I say, and then what did they do with them? Yeah. Because we don't find them anywhere. Did they put them in a time portal? Did they send them out of the universe? Did they take them to the coast and throw them into the sea? because we don't find them anywhere. So that's the kind of problem that the Watson letter creates and what it is that Rod Meldrum is trying to get out of by his creative explanation and what the Mesoamericanists are trying to get out of by fabricating a second Watson letter and trying to defraud people into believing that they are correct. This is a tangent. Um, but, um, uh, for the critical thinker out there, use your common sense and imagine again, a side story, not the ones we're talking about. Imagine 2000 stripling warriors fighting in a, an advanced military force. Um, imagine the battle in your head, the 2000 stripling warriors going up against a larger, more experienced army. They fight them and not one single, uh, soldier kid in the uh 
in the Nephite army loses his life. They suffer from blood loss, but nobody gets gangrene. They suffer from blood loss to the point that they faint, but nobody dies. There's no good medical staff. There's no hospitals. There's no transfusions. They get whacked so good that they're bleeding out and they pass out from blood loss, but nobody dies from infection. Nobody dies from blood loss. All 2,000 stripling warriors live. And I can't in my head, even with the providence of God, I can't make that work because even if that was real, you'd be watching like, like the craziest battle ever where not a single one of them falls and, and, and succumbs to death. It, it's absurd. The book is absurd to the point where apologists like Michael Ash say, yeah, you're right, Bill. I think the Book of Mormon authors are embellishing the numbers significantly. That's, that's the response of an intelligent apologist is that the Book of Mormon, even if true, isn't accurate anyway. The battle with the stripling warriors was uh, an exchange of insults. <laughs> yeah. I, I keep I keep uh, thinking of the images we saw in Pinson State uh, Archaeological Museum, right? You, yes. you got your teeth, your bones, your your stone tools, and your and there's there's your advanced technical army. <laughs> it's not exactly oh, is it Moroni or Ammon or whoever the heck it is seated upon his white charger wearing armor that is reminiscent of the Roman army and carrying a huge broadsword. Yeah. Yeah. I think we've got, do we have two clips left or one bill? One clip left. Let's go. Our witness and testimony of the book of Mormon and indeed of the gospel itself shouldn't be based solely on evidence. We absolutely need a spiritual confirmation, a witness that touches our heart. But having documentable, tangible evidence of, of the truths found herein can help people, can open doors, can, can get them maybe thinking about the Book of Mormon in ways that they hadn't before, which can then lead to spiritual confirmation. Get into the pages, read the book, it can help support belief in the arena of Latter-day investigation. And as the Lord continues to shed new light and knowledge, we hope to be there to show what that evidence means as it relates to marvelous work. I hope you'll join us in our next episode. I'm Scott Christopher. Thanks for being here. See you next time. And there he goes. There goes our hero. So. We're left to anticipate additional episodes, but I did want to say one thing about what he said, and I want to give you a chance to say something about what he said. The thing that struck me was that he said that in the future, there will be additional finds. He says the Lord will reveal. People are going to dig stuff up. They're going to find more things archaeologically. And what he said I thought was significant. He says, we'll be there to show what that evidence means in relation to the Book of Mormon. He says in relation to this marvelous work, but it's the Book of Mormon, obviously. It's what the whole show's about. And this is actually, I think, a reveal, maybe more than was intended, that what they're there to do is take any archaeological find or literary structure or whatever, and they're there and going to be there to tell you what that means. And we already know from the outset what it is they're going to say it means. They're going to say it means 
the Book of Mormon is true. And it doesn't make any difference what the find or the evidence is. That is how it will be interpreted. He almost relieves us of any obligation to watch any future episodes because we already know what they're going to say. And the fact that they already know what they're going to say means the obvious, that this is the prism through which they interpret any evidence that is found anywhere in the Americas is that it means the Book of Mormon is true. Dr. Lunwall, closing thoughts. Well, um, again, this was supposed to be the greatness of the evidence. I Look, I, people want to believe, but uh, these people giving this presentation have a responsibility to give accurate, honest, full information. And when, when the trajectory is, uh, we will be there to tell you what to think about <laughs> what is found, that's not discipleship. That's, that's deception. So um, even if it's done with the best of intentions, with the greatest testimony, it's still wrong. Well put. There's an old saying, the road to Salt Lake City is paved with good intentions. <laughs> Mr. Real, your thoughts. This episode was one giant example of the Texas sharpshooter fallacy. And what you do is you take something that isn't a match, something that isn't a connection, something that has nothing to do with it, and then you walk up and draw a bullseye on it as if the bullseye had been there to begin with and you had hit your target. Um, Every one of these examples, I think, falls into this uh, idea of a Texas sharpshooter. As we pointed out, every one of these pieces of evidence is weak. I think the strongest one they have is Nahum, which they pronounce Nahum for a reason. Um, I just want to note that there are two lines of evidence that they pointed to. One is these four or five pieces of circumstantial evidence, which were deeply flawed and they had overreached on every one of them. And then the other is spiritual evidence when one prays and gets an answer. And again, I'll say it, believers of almost every faith tradition have spiritual experiences and know that their faith, their myth stories are true based on those experiences. Mormonism isn't unique. If you got a Mormon answer that your church is true, it's the same sort of answer that the folks at Heaven's Gate got that their cult was true. Um, that their high demand fundamentalist religion was the one true faith. Jim Jones followers had spiritual experiences. S folks in Scientology know that their apparatus of going clear works. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses are certain that they go out every week to knock on doors and be convinced that their church is true. Anyone in religion, every religion has followers who have spiritual experiences. Hence, both lines of evidence are deeply flawed. You ought to use logic, rational thinking, critical thinking skills, and examine evidence in the way that we did tonight. I agree with you that this 43-minute video is a prolonged exercise in the Texas Sharpshooter procedure as you have it illustrated in this wonderful diagram, Mr. Real. I would suggest that there's only one thing about this video that makes it even worse than this diagram. Do you know what that is? What, what's that? It's not just the broadside of a barn where they're shooting holes and then drawing the targets around him. It's all of North and South America. Tennessee, for crying out loud. <laughs>
We have got, Amen. let's say, nine minutes left before we hit the two-hour mark. Can we take some phone calls? Let's do it. Let me get rid of this uh, screen and the, turn that up. And we've got one call in the call bank. But, folks, if you want to call, it's 662, I believe, 667-6667. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, uh, you can call into the show, and uh, we'd love to hear from you. So here's the first caller. I believe it is a person by the name of Ted. Ted, are you there? Yes, sir, I am. All right, you're on Mormonism Live. All right. Um, thank you guys so much for taking my call, and I can't believe that I'm, I'm the only one. Um, I was up at 4 o'clock this morning, East Coast time, listening to Dr. Lundwall, and he was, cra- like, uh, you know, he laughed, like, the whole time, and I was cracking up with him. But I watched that show um, that you guys just did, uh, and... I, I made a comment and I said, well, that's 43 minutes of my life that I'm never going to get back. <laughs> and one thing that, uh, one thing that I'm not hearing is that, um, there's a book of, um, of Joseph, Joseph Smith's letter. And he wrote a letter to Emma when he was going through, I don't know if it was Western New York or Ohio, but he was saying like, he could envision like the, uh, Nephites and Lamanites, and uh, I was so glad when Bill said, um, um, you know, that that pick a spot because the spot is the heartland theory, but the church can't go with that. Well, I don't call it the church; I call it the corporation. But the corporation can't go with that because um, that's debunked. So now they have to do this smoke and mirror show, and. Um, uh, try to keep try to keep their followers paying their tithing but um but yeah that uh, anyways yeah that's that's all well i have a lot more to say but that's probably it in a nutshell yeah thank you ted so thanks so much for calling yeah ted. and and uh well yeah love you love you ghost rider shirt to rfm thank you <laughs> thanks for listening ted all right. Next, well, that is a good point because early on, the the church leaders are very clear. It's where it, everybody thinks it happened, right? At least the final battles was there in Camorra, and now we have a situation where the current leaders are basically throwing the former leaders, including Joseph Smith, under the bus by saying we don't know where it happened because what they're saying is they got it wrong. Yeah. Yeah. All right, next caller, I believe, is named Mike. Mike, uh, are you there? I'm here. All right, my friend, you're on Mormonism Live. Yeah, I wanted to thank you for the brilliant show tonight. I think uh, the facts presented and the uh, the evidence that you present just it it just it makes me feel good when I hear this kind of stuff. When I was a little boy, I used to always wonder how the gold plates got up to North America when they supposedly uh, were written in uh, Middle America. And um, about 20 years ago, I'm 67 now, and about 20 years ago, it just kind of fell away. And then when I found your show and the other shows like your show, it just confirmed to me what I had thought all along. And it just, uh, I think it's fantastic. What you do is brilliant every week appreciate what you do. That's just what I wanted to say. 
Thank you, Mike. That good feeling is the Holy Ghost. It's witnessing to you yes. what you're saying is true. Well, yeah, I don't know if that's what it is, but it just, uh, I just feel good when I hear this stuff because it, it just makes sense to me. It's just, you know, the fact-based things that you say just make sense. Yeah. Well, thank you, Mike. It is interesting, I think, and thank you for the compliment, Mike, but it is interesting to have that juxtaposition to be able to see what it looks like when people are using their brains about this kind of thing instead of just looking at the one thing which i did for decades when i was a member of the church right i just look at the church approved faith promoting stuff but when you look at that and then you look at our show then all of a sudden now there's a contrast that you can see and you can decide which one makes you feel better we had a third person, but they hung up. So I actually had turned off the suspended new calls from that point just before that. So we are out of the call bank is empty and we are finished. With the call. Okay. Well, I want to thank Dr. John, John Lundwall, excuse me, for coming on the show tonight. Uh, what wonderful comments you made and your experience and expertise has really contributed to make this a great show, I think. And Bill, thanks for always being here. Maven, thanks for being in the background, taking care of business, making the show run like a Swiss watch. I will close out now by saying that we will be here next week on Wednesday, same bat time, same bat channel. And if everything works out, keep your fingers crossed, we are going to be having President Nelson. No, I'm kidding. We're going to be having a discussion about the Solomon Spalding theory. And maybe, maybe uh, President Nelson will uh, be joining us. You know, uh, it's not direct evidence that he's going to join us. But I think there's definitely indirect evidence that he could be joining us next week. So put your faith in that, and we'll see what happens next Wednesday at 6.20 p.m. Mountain Time. See you then. Thanks, everybody. Mormonism Live. Better than touching your own little factory.